Welcome to the May episode of the International Voices Podcast. I'm Mike Smith from the Missoula Broadcasting Company, and I'm hosting a special edition of this monthly podcast series today. In this episode, we are turning the tables and switching the microphones, and I'll be your host and moderator. And Udo Fluke will be the guest of International Voices for a change. International Voices started in February of 2020. Most podcast episodes are recorded here in our studio facility on Radio Way in Missoula. I am the podcast engineer. To listen to previous episodes, please visit artsmissoula.org. Click on Arts Missoula Global, go to Radio and Podcasts, and select an episode. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you by Arts Missoula Global and the Trail 1033. I am excited to talk to Udo, who himself is an international voice. Born and raised in Wiesbaden, Germany, Udo has called Missoula home since 1989. This podcast was recorded in the tap room of Bayern Brewing in Missoula. Udo, what are you drinking? I'm having a dump truck. The United States has all these kind of cool and fun names for beers, but what would you call that in Germany? What's the actual, uh, what's the brew? I don't know. Um, a, a dump truck in the literal sense would be a Lastwagen. I think this refers to a situation where when you're floating a river and you're, <laughs> you're flipping right. and you're hitting the water... That's called a dump truck. And I, I know this from the label because I looked at the label once and there is a, there is a, a raft on it. Right. And so um, I realized that this had a connection to the activity of rafting. But not knowing that, if you were just to translate the word dump truck, it would be um, Lastwagen in German. Ah, Something, the old Lastwagen. Yeah, uh, and a Lastwagen beer would not be appealing. A dump truck is, and that's an interesting thing when you think about um, translations. I remember this great movie with Bill Murray about Lost in Translation and all of these things that, you know, they sound good in one language, Mm -hmm. but boy, if you try to actually make sense of them in another, it comes out really strange and (laughs) quirky and sometimes actually the almost the opposite of what you're trying to do or what you're trying to say. So I wouldn't market this in Germany with a literal translation because I think it would almost be something that people would go, yeah, I'm not going to have that. Well, a lust wagon in English would be kind of a cool name too. (laughs) See, and that's the thing. It might actually work better here. And there's lots of things that, you know, taken from the German language or from another language in general actually sound sound appealing Mm -hmm. or sexy. And you would go, hey, you know, that's a cool name. What does that mean? And then you you find out it means garbage bag. And you go, wow, but, you know, in that language, how that beautiful. sounds... Yeah, right. how beautiful. Well, especially, in no offense to German or English, but especially the French and the Italians. That's Those folks always have some words that are just gorgeous. Absolutely right. But there's a softer side to German, too. There's a softer side to German, too. And I think that um, probably this generation and the next generation might be uh, softer um, probably because it is not so traditional German anymore mm-hmm. um, than what my grandparents probably were raised in or raised with and so that that may have contributed to the softening altogether. Yeah, some of the words sound like, am I in trouble for something? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. you, you, but then right. there's beautiful words like, uh, we're here at Bayern, the uh, Edelweiss that's a beautiful word. I mean, the song makes it 
Absolutely, gorgeous. absolutely. And it is a, a beautiful image, you know. You're thinking of a mountain flower that um, is very pretty and very unique. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's royal white. Yeah. And so something that's very beautiful and uplifting and, you know, has a certain style to it probably. Sure. Does the vibe here at Bayern give you... You and I have talked before about the size of the country and all the different cultural areas. Right. And how an Austrian or uh, Bavaria, some right. of the various regions are different, quite different. They and are. That, and that we don't know enough about them in the United States, to be sure. Does this give you a taste of home at all, Byron? It does. Um, while I was born and raised in Wiesbaden, close to Frankfurt, which is sort of in the middle of the country. Um, Bavaria is in the southern part of Germany, you know, hours away from where I grew up. But it is the whole ambiance of, you know, when we look over there and there is a, um, a cabinet that is at least eight, eight foot tall, probably, mm -hmm. filled with beer mugs traditional German beer steins. Some of them are made out of clay. Some of them are made out of glass. Some of them are unusually large. Mm -hmm. Some of them are a pint size. This is something that you would find in any beer pub in Germany, regardless of the region. So there are some things that are universal and they would apply to, to any place. And then there are some unique things that probably only exist in the regional thing. But then I'm thinking it's the same in the United States where there are some universal things like, let's say, a hamburger or a hot dog that you could get anywhere in the country. But then there are very regional mm. specialties that yeah. if you are in the southern part of the country, you get that there, but not in the northern part or the other way around. Yeah. And so I think it's a, it's a little bit like that. I'm thinking of hot dogs and pizza in this country. You got your Chicago dog, you got your Chicago pizza versus New York. True. The Steins are interesting just due to the fact that um, we don't really have... We have a beer culture in the United States, but it's adopting from people who have immigrated to the United States. So right. there's definitely a German vein, and then there's uh, more of a British vein. Right. The ales and such. Right. But the pints are, are fascinating to me. I own a couple of pints, and the, the lid has always been interesting. Is that lid just to keep out bugs and this and that when you're enjoying your Yeah, beer? I think it's a very practical invention, um, the pewter lids. Originally, they were developed during the plague, and the idea was to make sure that, um, that the plague wouldn't spread. Right. And so um, anything that could get into your beer mm -hmm. that could be um, a fly or, or something else or, or probably just somebody coughing or sneezing across the table, if you have your lid closed, problem solved. So super smart. Super smart. And, um, and, you know, when you look at a beer mug, a good beer stein is thick-walled and not thin. And the idea is that when you cool it down, it will hold the cold like an insulated cup. Mm -hmm. But it's so basic and so old that it's been around before anybody ever thought of a cozy to put around a beer can or right. something like this. This has been around, you know, since the 15th century, if not longer. 
and somebody thought, okay, if we put beer mugs into a running creek with running water, it will cool the thing down to where it is fridge temperature. And if we then pour beer, even if the beer was not placed in a cold cellar, but if it's room temperature, we'll pour it in there, we close the lid, the thing will get cold in, you know, in no time. So the idea of early refrigeration and um, keeping something cold is just, when you think about it, for 500 years old, it's pretty good. Absolute genius. You know, I have a few uh, steins at home wondering if there's any value there, but also maybe I just should use them as opposed to having them up on the wall. I do in the summertime, um, not so much in the wintertime, but because in the wintertime it's not really, you know, probably that important that something is ice cold. But in the summer when it's 90 plus degrees, I think a traditional beer stein with a pewtered lid uh, keeps the beer, um, you know, cold longer. And I think the other thing is, the pewtered lid has a rim, so it's almost like it seals it up so that the carbonation stays in the beer. So the beer doesn't go flat as fast. If you would have a regular pint glass and right next to it a pewtered beer stein and you would fill them both, the regular pint glass would be flat within, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes mm-hmm. probably, and the beer mug will stay fresh much longer. Oh, that's great. Is it, what's the deal with the glass boot? I've uh, had beer out of a glass boot before. Is that an actual German tradition, or is that...? I'm, I'm sure it is, not necessarily from um, the area that I'm from, but um, I think with some of these things, it's also, there is a theatrical aspect to it. Right. And, um, I mean, you have to agree, when somebody sits at another table and drinks out of a ginormous, what looks like a cowboy boot made out of glass, you don't want to look, but you're looking. Right. And you're probably even wondering, what's in there? Is he drinking the same thing that I'm drinking? Right. All of that. So there's a lot of Can psychology. I get one of those? That's right. Yeah. There's a lot of psychology, I think. You know, it's kind of the idea that you tell the waitress, um, I'm having whatever the people over there having because right. they right. seem pretty happy. And, yep. and it's still steaming on their plate. And so, I, you know, this, this works for me. Can I have that? Well, leave it to Americans to, you know, take something from another culture and, and, and kick it up a notch, as they say. <laughs> well, uh, but back to your question, Mike, now that I think about it a little more, when I came here in 1989, the first place I went to, and probably it was because you want to hold on to something when you enter a new culture, because you are in the beginning, it's like swimming in the ocean without seeing a beach. Right. You're just swimming and you're saying to yourself, I cannot stop because then I will drown. Mm -hmm. So I will continue swimming, but hopefully there'll be a little island somewhere or a beach or at least some rock that comes out of the water that I can sit on and rest. And so um, Bayern Brewing had just opened uh, a couple years prior. As a matter of fact, they're having their uh, 35th anniversary beer, and I think that's what you're having uh, tonight, right? Yeah, the Pilsner. It's a Pilsner, 35th in a, anniversary Pilsner. In a proper glass, and I really appreciate that about Bayern. Um, that's right. They do, they do use the glasses that you actually should use. But that's when I went to Bayern for the first time, and I remember for probably the first half year or so until I met people in Missoula, mm-hmm. 
that was my place to go. And of course, at the time, it was at the end of Higgins, where the three X's are right, now, right. At the, in the train station. And it was a lovely place, and it had, uh, you know, a glass a wall that would separate the, the inside of the bar from the, the brewing installation so that you could actually see Jürgen yeah. be out there and, and brew beer and, and, you know, do samples and mm -hmm. hold them up and do whatever. And so there was this authenticity to it. Yeah, and every, like late night you would see somebody in there cleaning, you yep, know, with that's the, right. in, inside the tank. And I think that's one thing that brewers, uh, you don't know until you do it, almost like farming, like that brewers, at first glance, it sounds kind of glamorous. Hey, I brew beer, but it's a lot of cleaning and a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and I really think that while it might, uh, you know, appear as an easy thing, and especially when you see here and there beer brewing kids uh, yeah. in stores you kind of go oh you know that sounds easy enough right but I think it's like with everything you know there's always a an amateur version of something right. that that the that the average person can do and it and it I think it's great because then you can feel like you're part of something else mm -hmm. of a certain group it gives you a belonging and all of that but when you really look at it you know there is I mean, it is an art form, the yeah. art of beer brewing, and it yep. goes back, uh, you know, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, depending on when you, when you start calling a beer a beer in a traditional right. sense. But there is brewmaster school uh, in, in Germany, in Bavaria, um, where Jürgen went, and mm -hmm. you, you get a degree. I mean, it's not something that you do in your garage on a Saturday right. afternoon, and then you say, well, I now know how to brew beer. Yeah, you can probably do that with the kit that you buy, but just like with pretty much everything else, there is a deeper sort of level to it, and that's what I appreciate here, because over the years, Jürgen has made Doppelbock, I think even uh, triple bock or ice bock at some point. And those are things that, you know, are not so, um, they're, they're not so common and you need to really know what you're doing. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, it's not going to work. So I think that really, um, I really appreciate that about, about beer brewing is that if you know what you're doing, you can really do, uh, you know, incredible things. And I know Jürgen also sells a Rauchbier, which is a smoky beer. Ooh, Rauch, Rauchbier. Being a good Missoulian, I've, I've tried a lot of the different beers. And you're right, it's not something that everybody has necessarily the ability to do. And a guy like Jürgen, we're talking about like PhD level. That's right. It's a, you, need to, you need to know a lot. There's a lot of research involved. There's a lot of, of trial and error. And there are deeper levels to it. I imagine in Germany it's quite competitive to I think, uh, go work in beer. I think it is. Uh, I, I come, in full disclosure here, I come actually from um, uh, the largest wine region in Germany. And so I grew up, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, I grew up drinking wine. But um, I, I grew up in uh, sort of what is probably equivalent here, Sonoma County. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
And so when I would go out with my parents to a, a nice dinner, then my parents wouldn't have a beer, they would have a glass of wine. Right. And I think there's the big difference regionally, again, when you think about um, going out to dinner in Bavaria, mm -hmm. it's probably the other way around. And you would have, I don't know, three quarters of the people in, in any given setting or group would lean towards a beer where in the wine region it's the other way around and it's rare that people would actually and sometimes you get a funny look when you are in in uh, what is equivalent to sonoma county and everybody in a restaurant drinks the wine from the you know from the uh, wine region and then you go yeah i'll have a pilsner and, and <laughs> right, the, the waitress right. sort of looks at you as in you must be kidding right right and so there's that back to that regional thing well one of the things growing up traveling to europe and having uh, relatives in france was the interesting thing to me was that there's good wine in germany there's decent beer in france you can get good olive oil in spain and that it's not all and um, I think that's that's an interesting thing. And through globalization, you know, we can now get everything pretty much delivered to the furthest corner in the world. And that was different. Well, actually, not that long ago. Probably before Amazon, which which isn't that long ago. Right. People really had problems getting authentic things from a certain region shipped halfway around the world. And now, even with your time here. It's changed. Oh, absolutely. Since you've been in the States. Because when I, when I would go to Europe, I would load up on Kinder bars. Yes. And now I think you can go get those just about anywhere. You know, the hazelnut and chocolate uh, you, bar that is you, everywhere all over Europe, but now it's in the States. You can buy Nutella at Walmart um, and uh, in most grocery stores. And Nutella is what I grew up with um, in Germany, which is sort of the German peanut butter GIF. Yeah. And it's because in the United States, everything is based on the peanut. That's why you have peanut butter, and that's why you have payday candy bars. Mm -hmm. In Germany, there are no peanuts. So in Germany, the popular nut is the hazelnut. So everything is built on the hazelnut. So Nutella is a hazelnut chocolate spread. Ferrero Rocher, the round chocolate ball, basically has chopped up hazelnuts you mm -hmm. know, in, mixed in with chocolate. So it's interesting that we have sort of a unique nut preference. And, and this is true for other things too, like, you know, good luck finding marshmallows in Germany. They, don't, they virtually don't exist. They don't exist. Where here you can buy marshmallows at any grocery store. Well, my sister-in-law in Barcelona we used to always take her a jar of peanut butter in the, in the luggage because right. that was one thing she couldn't get there. That's exactly right. And but I remember in the early days, my parents, when I had come over here, my parents would say, can we send you something that, you know, connects you to home? So like a jar of Nutella or, mm. you know, something that was uniquely German. Now, I, I haven't asked my parents to send me anything for probably 15 years in that regard because I go to World Market right. and I buy it or I go to Wardens and I buy it or I go to pretty much any other place in town and chances are I can buy it. This, we'll talk about this more later. This goes to a different 
thing about just sort of the flattening and the shrinking yes. of the globe. Yes. And there's there's good and bad and uh, absolutely and, and a lot of other things. Let's talk about your parents. I know you were talking about where you were born and raised earlier, but let's let's start. Let's go back to the beginning of a young Udo Fluke and <laughs> and what you were like as a kid. Maybe some of your earliest memories and maybe some of those memories involve the arts or culture or sure uh, sure ways people get along. Yeah, so I was born and raised in um, a suburb of Wiesbaden, went to school there. As a child, if you know me today and you know what I'm doing, um, there was nothing of that in, in the child that I was. It was the opposite. I was shy and I was rather reserved um, and I think I was intimidated by a lot of things. And so they, there were others in school that were the athlete, the funny guy, the, the person that parents had a grocery store or whatever, whatever made them unique. I wasn't that. I was like flying under the radar and, uh, and, and, and that was fine because that's actually the German way is to not <laughs> stand out. And, uh, but I was, I was shy as a child. I went to school and I was questioning many times why because I, I i couldn't see sort of the application of things in the real world you know i remember i had a teacher that was pretty strict that that basically said well this this is just part of of you know what you need to learn and you know you could have continued that sentence with comma and we have learned that since you know the 15th century so don't don't question tradition mm. And, and I always sort of thought, mm, well, that, that may work for some people, but it doesn't probably work for everybody. So this idea of not one size fits all, that aside, so I wasn't a good student. I wasn't an invested student. I did it because it had to be done. In some ways, that sort of questioning is almost a necessity for graduate level work. That what you were saying, you're questioning some of what you were learning as a kid. Yeah, and, and I, you know, at some point, and I don't know exactly when it was, but at some point, somebody took me aside and basically said, listen, it's a game, just like everything else in life. Right. And there are rules, and when you familiarize yourself with the rules, you can play the game. And some people can play the game really well. Oh, yeah. And they advance, and they are successful, and they have lots of things that lots of people want because they understand the game. I thought, well, I don't understand the game. So, you know, it's like, whatever, um, I'm gonna get through this. And uh, I had very supportive parents. I remember that um, my parents, middle class, were sitting with me doing homework. And there was, there was never a, you know, I don't know how to do this. Uh, there was never a, I can't help you. There was always, well, we, we didn't learn this, but, th you know, that's probably a good time for us now to learn it too. Let's learn this together kind of an mm. approach. And so um, I had very supportive parents. I had parents that, you know, they, they showed a lot of love. They, they provided support. They were a role model. They taught me responsibility. Mm -hmm. and, and what I really, really enjoyed was that they didn't, they weren't of the opinion of what we learned and what our profession is, is what you should get into as oh. well. Open-minded. Open-minded. And I really enjoyed that. And I remember my dad saying, you know, it's important that what you do makes you happy 
every day. And then um, he said something like, because I had a time when I wasn't happy every day with what I was doing. So sure. take that as a lesson that's really important. And so um, lots of experiences. I remember my, my dad would drive me to judo classes because self-defense is probably a good idea for everybody and so I did that. Uh, then I had tennis lessons, I had all kinds of uh, piano lessons, I had all kinds of exposure and I think that when I now as a father look at my own children, I think that's really a big part mm. is to provide experiences and they could be anything. Right. They could be sitting in the backyard and having a wooden stick and a knife and, uh, and carving something. Sure. They could be anything as long as it is something where you spend time with your child. And I had that with my parents, and so I'm really looking back, I'm really thankful that they weren't parents that were both super busy and worked busy jobs and didn't have time for me, but my mom actually stayed home for the longest time until I think I probably went to high school. She was home, and so it was really nice because I would come home and I would, you know, I would uh, have somebody to talk to. And so that really, I think, also, you know, made for a very nice um, childhood and growing up. Yeah, it sounds like a recipe for a happy childhood. Did you work as a, as a kid when you got older? Did yeah, you I, I, I early on, and I don't really know how what sparked that, but early on, I became interested in 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 television production and television directing and uh, and 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 film, and so I I I worked two things in in typically in vacation times mm -hmm. when there wasn't any school, um, I either worked at a large uh, theater company, movie theater company in my hometown. Uh, you know, you needed ushers, you needed people that would go in and, um, you know, take the tickets and, and show people with a flashlight to their seat. Uh, then there was the... Um, before the feature film would start, you would have a box of ice cream and you would walk in there and, you know, you would sell ice cream, that kind of thing. Is popcorn a thing in Germany? Not or? so much. I think at some point it started, but I remember when I was a kid, it was mostly ice cream. Ice cream. And it wasn't, and it was small, you know, like small boxes of, of ice cream um, nuggets or things like that, mm -hmm. or an ice cream cone that you would lick, that kind of a thing. Nothing wrong with ice cream. That's right. And then the other thing was working at, there were two main TV stations in Germany and the Zweite Deutsche Fernsehen, ZDF, which means the second German broadcast company, was the one that I started one summer uh, as a summer job and then it continued on weekends. So once I had a car and I could actually drive, um, then I would work on weekends and I would work a Saturday or a Sunday and I was just, I became more and more fascinated with the idea of getting into broadcast journalism and, you know, the idea of entertaining people through telling a story, that mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And that's what brought me here was um, Missoula has one of the oldest journalism schools in the country. And so that was the connection. I'm sure we could talk a lot about your childhood, a lot more, but you said Missoula. Yes. And I imagine your listeners' ears have perked up at this point. Yeah. How did this guy get all the way from Germany to Missoula? We've all met exchange students. Right. And, and, and sometimes the exchange students 
show up and uh, study, and we make friendships, and then they move on. You stayed. Right. You um, showed up, and then you, uh, you stayed on. So I was twice here in the 80s with my parents uh, for vacation because my mother's brother um, left Germany after Second World War and uh, wanted to have a fresh start somewhere else. And he basically got on a ship in Hamburg, bought a ticket to go to New York. And so uh, he, he, long story short, he met a woman on the ship that he married, and the woman was from Hamilton, Montana. <laughs> what are the odds, right? You are on a ship from yeah. Hamburg to New York, and she's from Hamilton. And so there, she basically says, hey, come with me, and I'll show you where I live. And so my uncle then ended up in Hamilton. So from Wiesbaden, uh, from a suburb of Wiesbaden to, uh, to Hamilton, my grandparents only had two children, my mother and my uncle. And so uh, that left my mom alone. And uh, my mom is several years younger than my uncle was. My, my uncle passed on several years ago, but there was this connection. And when I was growing up, there was always this, once you have sufficient English skills, we can go and visit the uncle in America. And that was always sort of the fascinating thing because I've never met him. And my mother hadn't seen him in decades. And so or when I was in high school, had a sufficient English level to say, you know, we, because my parents didn't speak much English. Right. And they said, you could be our translator. Let's go and visit uncle. And so we did these two trips in the 1980s to the United States. And both trips involved you know, the, the usual big sites for a European, Grand Canyon, uh, Yellowstone National Park, uh, Los Angeles, Hollywood, you know, the, the usual. Uh, but both brought us to Great Falls. My uncle had by then moved to Great Falls, and so we visited him in Great Falls. And I remember distinctly uh, vacation in 1987. So I graduated from high school in 1989. 1987, he said, what are, your, what are your dreams? What do you want to do when you're done with high school in two years? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm working at a TV station, and I'm, I'm working at the local theater company, and I'd, I'd love to, to get into broadcast journalism. And my uncle said something like, huh, that's interesting because I just read in the, in the Great Falls paper that um, they build a brand new apart TV center in Missoula at the University of Montana. We should go and check it out. And so we went in 1987 and it wasn't even completed at the time. They were still building it. It was this new studio facility that was brand spanking new and had the newest equipment and everything. And so we visited and had a tour of the facility and all that. And when we were done, I remember my parents said, so what do you think? And we were sitting outside at the Lomassen Center and there's a photo of my mother and I sitting at the table. They had, at one point, they had wooden tables out there. Right. And we just were done with the tour and we were sitting out there and my dad took the photo and my dad Dad, by the way, is one of the greatest photographers. I mean, it takes him a while to set up a photo, but it's good. When it's done, <laughs> it's good. And that was one of those photos. My mom and I, are, you know, he probably said, look over here. And we both turned and, and that's when he, when he took the photo. And that's when, we're, when we were discussing what we just had learned from this tour. And my parents said, so what do you think? And I said, well, I still have two years of high school, but I think it would be awesome to come here. I mean, I, you know, think about it. In, in yeah. the 80s, Missoula was much smaller. You know, Reserve Street was a two-way street. Right. And there was nothing um, basically past Target. There was, uh, well, Carl Tyler was there. And that was about the only thing that was out 
there. And so Missoula was much, much smaller. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, I grew up skiing. My parents uh, used to go uh, skiing with me and put me in ski school. And so I learned to ski the Alps from every side, the Swiss side, the Italian side, the German side, the French side. And when I came here, somebody said, oh, and by the way, there's Marshall Mountain. It's like, you know, it's like you could throw a stone, actually, from Missoula. <laughs> if you're a good thrower, you could throw a stone there. That's how close it is. Um, and, and so there was all this appeal to Missoula. And so in 1989, when I graduated from high school, I didn't take a leap year. I leaped over here. And I started in the fall at the University of Montana studying broadcast journalism. Oh, man, that's cool. So I, the facilities were there, the, the fa ski hill, the town, the, uh, the, the majesty of Montana. All of it, Mike. And, and, you know, when I think back, there is something that is very unique about a college town, probably any college town. And I think where we're sitting right here is part of it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a pub culture where you go out and you, you go to a pub and you discuss a paper or a lecture that you just had. Right. And so people come together. There is this sense of community. You meet other people. And, and so I really enjoyed that about Missoula was this connection that was there to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so yeah, I mean it was it was just all super appealing. The the academic side of things was the recreational side of things. The skiing yeah. was everything. And I remember one of my first lectures in uh, at the University of Montana. So imagine you have. You know, I don't know what it was in the end, six, seven years of English. So in Germany, when you go to, to school and you go to high school, you have to, ha at the time, you had to have two foreign languages. So I chose English as the first one. And then a couple years into it, uh, um, there was French. Mm -hmm. And so so you you feel like, you you know, you can you can you can take anything on because you had six or seven years of English. The, the thing they don't tell you is that ordering a train ticket at Heathrow Station for two people with an overnight in the train is not something that you ever need in your life. I have yet to go to Heathrow and actually purchase those <laughs> tickets because right. it was a textbook, right? So all of these things are artificial and you, you, and you know, some of it is, is rather useful and some of it is not. But I came over here and I thought, oh yeah, I can go and sit in an American and uh, an English lecture, no problem. And I remember I was sitting there and and I was trying to, to, to adjust my ear to it and I couldn't. And this person could have also spoken Mandarin. It mm -hmm. really didn't matter. I mean, the person was from, the, uh, from a southern state, so there was a, a different dialect to, to the English language. But I was scared. I came back to my dorm room in Aber Hall and I told my roommate, I don't think I can, I can do this because I don't actually speak any English. And he said, no, Udo, you do, because you and I speak English. And he was from Kalispell. And, and he said, of course you do. It, it's just you need to give your, your ear some time to adjust. You've been spoiled with the Oxford accent, but, you know, around here nobody speaks Oxford English. And so, um, you know, people don't say perhaps, they say maybe. And mm -hmm. so you get used to it, just give it some time. And that was good advice because at some point, I, I, my ear had adjusted and right. then I kind of was okay with it. And just full immersion. 
full immersion, full on. I mean, I did everything that you could do. I went to the movies. I thought it was a great way of, of you know, getting the ear adjusted. Um, and, and I saw everything that was there to see. Um, and I, I went out with, with my roommate and others every chance I got because I realized that, that, that the, the academic side of things was providing some experience for life, mm-hmm. but then there was a totally different one that you could not get in a lecture hall. Ah. But it was actually, you know, sitting with a guy over a beer. Were there some people at the university that inspired you? You had It, it sounds like you had a oh, great roommate, yeah. but there professors were, and instructors? Yeah. There, there were people that, um, that really... You know, you meet people in your life, and, and I'm sure you, you could make the same list of people that, that have inspired you, that you kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, they, they, they had a certain way, and, and I just, you know, I, I wanted to be like them, or there was something about them that I really admired. And so there were lots of people. Um, when I look at my college career, it spanned 10 years because, well, I got four degrees all in all. So when you then break it down, it probably... I wasn't all that lazy. It just is what it takes. Right. When we you need do to revisit you as a student mm-hmm. now that we know that there's four degrees but later it, on in life. But it was, it was 10 years, and so I met a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the people that stand out um, are, uh, are basically four professors that I still, with, um, with two of them, I still am in contact today. Uh, the other two, unfortunately, have passed on. Otherwise, I probably would be in touch with them as well. One is Bill Rowell. He was a professor in, in the uh, theater department. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was Bill Knowles. Um, he, uh, is, uh, he was a professor in journalism, and so he was my advisor. Maureen Fleming was a professor in the College of Business. Right. And um, Nader Shoshtari, also a professor in the College of Business. And both of them were um, on several of my, uh, uh, of my graduation committees. And then I went on with um, both Nader Shoshtari and Maureen Fleming to write research articles and to actually present them at conferences in the 90s and in the early 2000s. So, and, and still today, um, Nader Shoshtari actually came over to our house uh, a week ago. And so I'm assuming you were a good student straight away because you almost had to be. So here's the thing, Mike, and this is, I think, when if somebody were to come up to me and say, would you recommend um, a, uh, you know, a, a study abroad thing or, or whatever, something that gets you out of your comfort zone? Right. I would, and it doesn't really matter what you study. It's like when people come up to me and say, I'd love to study a foreign language. Which one would you advise I should take? Mm -hmm. I usually say, it doesn't matter. Pick whatever you want. The fact that you're interested in doing that and that you want to train your mind to code switch back and forth, that's the key. And it doesn't matter which language you do it in. I mean, whatever you're interested in and passionate about, probably because you've traveled there or you read books about that country. But ultimately, it makes no difference because your brain does the same thing with every language. And that is to become really quick. It's like a muscle. 
And right. so, so if you train your brain with another language, you also notice you're quicker and you're, you're, you, know, you can do certain things because you speak two or three languages. And I know people that speak four or five languages fluent. And, and I bow to them because I'm thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I just mastered two, um, uh, English and, and, uh, and German and a little bit of French. But when I look at somebody that speaks four or five, I go, holy moly. That is really a test to keep that straight in your brain. Yeah. So, um, so and especially folks that go, you know, learn something a non-Western or a non-Romance exactly language. That's exactly right. I mean, if you learn uh, you new know, Japanese and new alphabet, Japanese or Chinese, and you have symbols and characters, six thousand of them, and and you kind of go, wow, I, how is that even possible? I could just barely barely manage the letters in the alphabet to string them together to words. But that's sort of the thing is that um, whenever somebody has a chance to do that, it doesn't matter which country you go to, it doesn't matter you know, what, you're, what you're studying there or what you're doing, it's the fact that you immerse yourself in another language. In your daily activity, your daily activity um, will be in that other language. And that's, I think, what makes you a better student, too. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that because I knew I was shy and I knew I was not really... If you would have asked me while I was in Germany, do you, do you want to be different? I would have said, yeah, I want to be the Gregorious guy that goes out and can tell jokes and make people laugh. But I wasn't that. And so um, a good friend of mine, Daniel who I spent a lot of time with prior to leaving Germany to come to Missoula in 89. I mean, this guy was a classmate, and he the only thing he got out of it was that he lost a friend. Um, the worst thing you could do is, you know, to actually help somebody to get away from you, because then you don't have them anymore. Right. And he was, he, he had that at stake. He, he probably could have just sabotaged the whole thing and said, you know, I'm... You know, I, you're never going to make it in America. So why don't you just stay here? Because then we're going to be friends and we can continue to do things. But he went with me uh, to Frankfurt to, and this is all pre-internet, uh, to go to libraries to check on American universities and which ones had um, journalism schools and all of that. But but he was the one that told me. He said, "You have this unique ability to redefine yourself once you set foot." into the foreign country because nobody knows you and if you want to be the funny guy you can design it that way if you want to be the serious guy you can design it that way too so you have a chance to reinvent yourself at the age of 20 wow. and most people don't have that a very astute friend he was and and he said you know you can be whatever you want to be and and usually people think of that as in success right mm-hmm. and money and right. you know but, but that wasn't his point. His point was you can change your personality. You can polish the things that you want to have elevated and you can suppress the things that you're not so proud of, like shyness. Mm-hmm. You can suppress that. And then people will only know you as the outgoing and, and Gregorious guy. And so I remember that. And when I came here, I, like I said, I did everything I could do to participate in things. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't want to be shy and I didn't want to get the stamp shy shy guy on, right. on me. And so that redefining, I think, also then gave me self-confidence to be 
a good student and to be a student that actually cared and that wanted to be successful. And I wasn't that in Germany. So there was this big change of, it's almost like, you know, a totally different person from zero to 20 Germany would be one chapter and then 20 to now would be the, the other chapter. I imagine you've used that with your students before, kind of what you've learned from your transition. You try. You try to try to yeah. give some of that advice. So you pack a bag or two and you pack this idea of who you are going to be on American soil when you come to the U.S. Right. and become a student. And you're, you're walking around with the name Udo Fluke. You know, people looked at it sort of uh -huh. as in a double take. I remember one specific incident at Hastings Video Store. I, um, I checked out a video that I wanted to watch, an action movie. And I went up to the cash register and the lady said, do you have your, um, your card, your, your Hastings card? And I said, yeah, sure. And, and, uh, and I, I looked and I couldn't find it. And, um, and she said, well, I can also look you up by your name. What's your last name? And I said, um, Fluke. Uh, F-L-U-C-K and she typed it in and as she typed she smiled and she looked at me and she said now that is a great name the movie is free and I said what? what? and she said yeah I mean this is a great name man the movie is free and so I remember that walking out of there going I actually got something for my name for once a free movie from Hastings right I had to bring back the next day of course but right. that night I was watching that action movie and I was feeling like a hero because I thought, hey, I got a free movie for my last name. Um, so yeah, you're right. It is, it is not an, an easy name, but um, as you know, there, there are two Udos in town, in Missoula, mm -hmm. that I know of anyway. Right. And we're sitting at Bayern and when we look at the, um, at the Bayern menu, there is the... Um, cup of Udo's dragon soup. And, and that's not you. That's not me. That's the other Udo. And, and, and I don't know how many times people have said that, hey, they named a soup after you. And I go, no, they didn't because it's not me. It's the other Udo. But what are the odds? I mean, if, you know, if, if my name would have been Joe or, or, or Jim, then, mm -hmm. then you, know, you, you wouldn't even have that because there's so many because it's a popular name. But even growing up in Germany, my first name, there was one other Udo in my elementary school when I was growing up, and that was it. So it's not a well-known or a popular name. It's not a common name. No, common it's name. not a common name. And I think there is something nice about that um, that I learned to appreciate much later. And so um, we applied the same thing when we picked the names for our kids was to, to, to come up with something that had a certain meaning and had a history to it and that kind of thing. And um, my parents and I asked them once, what, what was the motivation for a three-letter name? And they said, well, we just, you know, we didn't want to have it turn into a nickname. And so we decided if we sh pick a name that's short enough, nobody can shorten it more. And so, and you can't shorten Udo. So that was their reasoning. Fascinating. <laughs> well, with a name like Mike Smith, I was like, well, we could switch. You could be Mike Smith or you could be Bob Anderson for, you know, see how that works. But then the, uh, then the accent comes in and people are like, I met this guy, Bob Anderson. And he's, uh... <laughs> so 
you've really, you know, I find it interesting. Again, we're in Byron, and I find it interesting that our friend Jurgen Noller still has a bit of an accent. Right. And then yours is completely different than his. You've been, not unlike Jurgen, you've been in the U.S. longer than you were in Germany. That's correct. But, but Jürgen, um, who is probably just a few years older than I am, I don't actually know how old he is, but um, he is not that much older. So he has lived here uh, just a few years longer. But he's from Bavaria, and so a different region, different dialect. And I do think that, um, you know, some people like to keep their accent because it's it's part of of who they are and they don't want to give that up yeah and so i think they hold on longer to that and i'm thinking of arnold schwarzenegger i mean i'm sure that wow. that yeah. that the guy is capable and, and would have been capable decades ago to um to do speech classes uh if he wanted to really get rid of the austrian accent he could have done it but he was much smarter than that he said it sells it sells it makes me the arnie that i am and so if i lose my austrian accent then then i'm losing part of myself it's funny as a kid of the 80s i still perk up when when arnold speaks because it's yeah. his same voice with the it's same the accent it's the same voice with the same accent and it has something endearing to it and it mm -hmm. has something that's you know it's authentic Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I get this all the time. I mean, I go to a store and I buy something and uh, the, the, the checkout person will say, oh, do I detect an accent there? And I go, yep, yeah, you have. Well, is it Norwegian? And then, you know, I look at them, oh, are you kidding me? And then, uh, is it German? And then I go, yep, it's German. And then usually there is some connection and somebody will say, well, um, I... Uh, you know, I lived in Germany or I have German ancestors or whatever. And so I, I'm used to that hearing that certain accent and I can place it, that kind of thing. But uh, but yeah, I think uh, accents and, and, and names for that matter and language in itself is such a fascinating thing because you can tell so much from, you know, a unique name um, because it usually has a history. And, and when right. people have immigrated to this country and came you know, from other countries in Europe, uh, and the the immigration officer, because your last name was this long, and had you know seventeen letters and a couple of umlauts, then the the immigration officer said, "Well, let's just shorten this to, you know," and then it was shortened, right. and so uh, so a lot of these names actually changed when people immigrated because. You could have not pronounced them if they had certain letters in them or certain umlauts, and they just shortened it. So not unlike an unfiltered Pilsner, your name is unfiltered through that office because you just arrived as Udo Fluke. That's right. It was never... But I, I, I know that from you know reading up on immigration and Ellis Island and the whole mm -hmm. thing and you know large books that are still there and if you know that your ancestors came from Italy yeah. in uh, in 1887 you can actually look up how many ships from Italy came in the year 1887 and you can exactly. go to the ship's log and you can look until you find Alfonso Bertinelli right and that's your great 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 grandfather and a lot of 
of folks, it seems like, uh, I know my wife's uh, grandmother, she didn't want to necessarily carry on the Italian heritage as much. There was some of that. Right. But it was like, no, we're going to go with English. Right. We're going to assimilate. Right. And some of that stuff gets lost. And you see it. It's sad, but it's also understandable. Oh, of course. People want to blend in. And they want to, to a certain degree, uh, they want to be part of something else. And I can only imagine if you were Irish and um, your last two potato crops rotted in the ground because of a fungus and you right. were just done with with farming potatoes in Ireland and you you know you you got on that ship with 300 other uh, people from Ireland and you came across the Atlantic and you arrived at Ellis Island and um, and you know you you there was the new world there was something new and you probably were really eager to leave a lot of it behind agreed yeah and I think that happened to a lot of people. And then oftentimes, of course, what happens is that over time, people are curious and they want to know, where am I actually from? And, you know, and that's, that's the fascination. I, here and there, I meet people that, that go, oh, I went to, uh, you know, to Italy or to Norway um, two years ago, and, uh, and, and I actually found my great-grandparents' house, and I talked to the neighbors, and, you know, and the only explanation for this is, is that, that people need that connection, and, yeah. and they need to, that's something that irks them to find out who they actually are and where they're from. And so this entire melting pot idea, I'm very suspicious of it. I mean, I like the idea. It's a beautiful, you know, sort of metaphor. You think that all these people from, you know, from, from all these countries and following the, the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, bring me your tired and your hurt and your weak and, and, and your sick and all of that. Right. Yeah, I get all of that. But in the end, nothing ever melted. Because when the Italians arrived at Ellis Island and they said to the immigration officer, hey, um, where's my clan? And they would say, oh, uh, it's uh, Little Italy in right. New York. And right. they would go, oh, that's where I will go. Of course. And, uh, yeah. and the Germans came and the immigration officer said, well, it's Germantown. Right. And uh, the French were sent to, uh, uh, you know, New Orleans. Uh, and so... There was, it didn't all melt away. And actually, thank the Lord, it didn't all melt away. Because if the culture that you had and you came here would have melted away, what a sad thing. Because then I wouldn't go to German Fest every Labor Day Sunday because I wouldn't even know I'm German. Right. I would have no reason to go. And so I think a lot of it would be lost if actually things melted away and were all sort of this 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 liquid that was that you couldn't distinguish anymore but people remember where they're from and they're proud of it yeah and some people even in the fifth generation still eat lutefisk and you know when you think about it it's not a very attractive meal and the fish isn't even all that tasty right but it's the idea of that's what our what our forefathers did and so that's part of us and it's part of our culture and so let's find lutefisk and 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 prepare it for the holidays because 
you know, that's 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 life proof that it didn't melt away. And the whole melting pot idea. I like to think of of this more as a salad bowl. You know, we can look at a salad bowl. You can toss the salad for as long as you want. You can always identify the individual ingredients of the salad. And and when yeah. you think of a society, especially one that is as mobile as Americans are, people move around all the time. So the entire country is like a ginormous salad bowl, and people are migrating left and right. They grow up someplace, they go to school somewhere else, then they get a job offer somewhere else. Then all of a sudden, at 60, their bones ache, and they go to Arizona where it's warm, and they can retire. And so there is all of this movement. Americans are the most mobile society on the planet. Right. I know people in Germany that are my generation, they went to school with me, that have lived in houses that were built in the 17th, 18th century, and they were in their families ever since. They didn't migrate anywhere. They just live there with pride. And the floors are squeaky, and you don't have power outlets in the wall because, you know, but, but there is a certain tradition and a connection to to the place. The idea of a sense of place, obviously with the internet and all the resources that are out there, the ability to trace your ancestry back. I, right. I uh, traced some family through New Brunswick and found out that there were ship people and that there was a shipwreck. Yep. And and it's also quite fascinating. And, and I think this salad that you were talking about, this salad analogy, just makes everything so much more interesting to know a German, to know somebody from Ireland, That's right. to know somebody from That's uh, right. China, Thailand. I mean, that is, in I a way, agree. the mission of what we'll be talking about with your life, but the idea that this is, it's just so much more interesting than meatloaf. Nothing wrong with meatloaf, but at the end of the day, it's very interesting to have these different flavors and these different... Totally agree. These... Uh, people from here there and everywhere and we can learn about each other's culture and right. food and, I just, you, and you, everything else you threw me off for a second i didn't know if you were referring to um the artist meatloaf or to the dish <laughs> right. so i i i was well, and for for some folks stay tuned for a an entire <laughs> two hours on meatloaf the artist <laughs> No, we, we wouldn't do that to anybody, but I have gone to his concerts in Germany. So interestingly enough, you know, I left Germany in 1989, but I, my visits in the summer, several years were timed, and a good friend of mine, um, Joachim, uh, was always kind enough to get tickets. And so we actually have seen Meatloaf in Germany perform in the 90s. Uh, just when um, Bed Out of Hell 2 came out. Oh, interesting. And it was fascinating. Yeah. And I remember my wife um, took me once to a concert that had a full uh, symphony orchestra in Cologne. So we drove from Frankfurt to Cologne to go to this Meatloaf concert. And you know, Meatloaf uh, was in front of the stage and uh, and he always had a female singer to you know to do the bantering of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Oh, you can't light. do that. You can't do that without a female you voice. You can't. And so um, but there was an entire symphonic orchestra in the back, Mike. And and that's, I think, when I really... Uh, until then, I thought, oh, yeah, the guy, the guy is interesting, you know, because he's different. Right. And... Um, 
but but that's when it really struck me that there was more to it than just being interesting. I mean, he had an operatic voice. Um, he 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 could have not been that successful without Jim Steinman, who who wrote all of the songs. There's always a Jim Steinman. There's always, There's always a, a person like that behind the scenes of every band, and who can run totally it down. Agree. I hope you will listen to part two of this conversation and tune in next month for another episode of International Voices. Those of you who have listened to previous recordings of International Voices know that Udo always closes with a German farewell. Dankeschön, first Suhern, 